Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 135. Uh, continuing with the Colonial Craftsman uh, Country Trades, okay? And this is Part 2. I'm going to start off with <coughs> Sawyers, someone who cuts timbers. Small studding timbers and, and boards for flooring and wainscoting were sawn from logs that have first been squared with a broad axe. Sawyers, working by hand in pairs, cut most of them well into the 18th century. Sawyer was a recognized craft, but there's evidence that its journeymen did more with their arms than with their brains. Those small batches ripped at building sites were often sawn on high trestles in the medieval way. Most Sawyers worked in narrow pits with the timber resting on transverse rollers. Permanent pits were lined with brick and had level sills to let into their top courses for the rollers to ride on. Holes through the rollers allowed them to be turned with a bar to move the balk endwise. The leader of the team, the top sawyer, stood on the timber and guided the saw along a snapped-on line. He also pulled the saw up so that the pitman below could pull it down again for the cutting stroke. The pitman swabbed the saw occasionally with linseed oil. Each cut was stopped a little short of the end of the timber. This kept the planks in place so that the top sawyer would have something to stand on until the last one was sawn. The whip saw or sash saw with a thin narrow blade stretched in a wooden frame goes back at least to Roman times. Though called common, the thicker, wider, bladed pit saw with a tiller handle at the top and an easily removable box handle at the bottom seems to have been still something of a novelty around 1700. The whip saw cut more freely, but the broad saw held to its line more steadily and could be conveniently pulled from the kerf. Water-powered and wind-powered sawmills duplicated the action of the saw sash with a crank and a connecting rod known as a pitman. Of course, to move the saw up and down, as it moved, it hit the operating arm of a ratchet wheel, which inched the timber carriage against each saw tooth. Such mills operated in New England at least as early as 1633. Gang saws with two or three blades set parallel in the sash to cut several boards at once appeared in Maine in around 1650. There was no further improvements in sawmills until the circular saw was introduced in 1814. The whole countryside came to look at the round saw that the clockmaker Eli Terry installed in his factory in Connecticut in 1860. The joiner. John Alden's was ship's cooper on the Mayflower. Perhaps there was something about Priscilla Mullins that led him to jump ship and set up as a joiner and no doubt, as carpenter, too, in the wilderness. No known work of his even survives, but he was the first of many. A joiner worked hard. His boards didn't come to him all dressed from a planing mill, but rough sawn from the pit. He had to dress the showing faces of them with planes by hand. The razor-sharp blade of a plane projects just slightly and evenly from the slot in the flat sole of the tool which, riding on the surface of a board, 
keeps the edge from digging in and cutting too deeply. The plane thus removes a shaving of consistent thickness. Any forming of an edge from a simple half-round bead to a molding of three or four inches wide, the joiner had to cut with a specialty-shaped plane. As a result, he usually owned, quite literally, a barrel full of wooden planes. Except for their irons or blades, he made them himself of maple as a rule. He shaped the block, long or short, according to its purpose, and pierced it with a hole, wide at the top and tapering downward to the blade slot at the bottom. At the back of the hole, he was cutting a sloping frog to receive the blade and the wedge that held it. Wedges were the wing nuts and set screws of early times. Striking the top of a plain stock near its front would loosen the wedge for changing the depth of cut. And a tough plug was inset there to take the blows. The handle of a plane, called the tote, stood behind the blade. It was originally merely a hook for hanging up the tool. The cap iron, or the back iron, which curled shavings to keep the blade from clogging, was added only some ten years before. A Mr. H. Knowles, in 1827, made the first cast iron plane stock, with a screw to hold the slotted blade. The first back iron was merely an old blade face down. <clears throat> the joiner's four-sided planes appear on this throughout many major museums, um, including those are the jack plane, which gouged wood down the sides and had a slightly curved blade. This made it for faster, a faster cut, but left tool marks and would be removed by the trying plane or the short joiner. The long joiner took high spots from floors after they were laid. Its great length kept it from creating hollows. The ill-named smoothing plane was for tight corners and small work. Most of the planes that filled the joiner's barrel were rabbit planes, with profile cutters and soles for special shapes. A rabbit plane was narrow as a rule and had a guiding fence along its left-hand side. The early joiner covered a fireplace wall, or most of it, with vertical wainscot boards and constructed all interior partitions on them. Sometimes he carried the wainscot full height around the window walls, too, but there he merely often reduced it to chair rail height and plastered the wall above. Even if the plaster had to be clay because there was no lime, these wainscot's boards were shiplapped. At first, the, join <coughs> the joiners contented themselves with a simple bead on the edge, but soon they went into an elaborate moldings using a plane that took, <coughs> that took so wide a cut that a an apprentice had to tow it with a rope, while the master pushed all his weight and guided it. The joiner first roughed out such a big molding with a smaller plane or a series of planes. A job site like this had to be held firmly on the workbench. Vices were known, but hard to come by because of the wooden screws that tightened them had to be carved by hand, and few were competent to do it, or it would cost so much money for the individual to do it, have it done for him. The joiner used a catch against the end of the board to resist the plane's push and a hole down to keep the board from slipping sideways. Both went into holes in his workbench. The catch was merely a tanged iron block 
with one sharp edge to bear against the wood. The hold down or hold fast was shaped um, like a U. Its head part reached over the board, its tail angled on the square oversized bench hole, and was jammed tight in by a hammer blow. The carpenter joiner had, had stairways to build. Even the earliest 17th century houses used their attics as sleeping quarters for boys. The narrow stairs to these were at one time entirely enclosed beyond, beyond wainscot, but before 1650, artisans moved them up and provided handrails capping short balusters, which stood on a slanting string piece that hid the ends of the steps. The joiner probably turned the balusters himself on a spring pole or back-action lathe in his shop. He operated this by pressing down on a foot treadle to spin the lathe and then allowing the spring of an overhead pole to raise the treadle again. Rotation was discontinuous, but men who have run such a lathe say it was easy to get used to and good work certainly could be done on this type of machine. So making windows, frames, and sash was also a part of a joiner's work. Up until 1700, windows were all small casements, about a foot, about a foot wide and two feet high, glazed with leaded glass. Most people placed the sashes in pairs or triplets and hinged them, not more than a third of them, to open. The much flawed glass was less than a, uh, than a 16th of an inch thick. It was cut into small panes called quarrels, and it was held between calms, strips of lead, which were heated with the glass in place to make them grip it. Many of these casements still served in 1776, but almost none of them survived the Continental Army's acquisition of lead for bullets. Early houses in Philadelphia uh, and the Wren Building at Williamsburg, built in the late 1600s, had modern sliding sash windows with larger panes of glass held in wooden muttons instead of lead. As they became increasingly popular, joiners had to learn to make the special frames they required. Only the lower sash moved as a rule, and it had to be propped open to stay open. Very few windows had sash weights. The joiners put tenons on the ends of the muttons and held the corners of the sash together with dowels. Village joiners frequently made simple furniture that involved no fancy curved pieces, but they justified their name by joining the parts with ingenuously (coughs) planned mortises and tenons and with nicely accurate dovetailing. Since houses rarely had closed clauses, the joiner's principal product was chest. At first, simple, lidded boxes. The boxes with a drawer or two under them. Then boxes that were all drawers, panels, carvings, and, and painted decorations, ornaments on the earlier ones. Few of these men ever signed their work, but in Hartford, Hartford sometime in the late 1600s, one of them did scratch inside a box that he made. Mary Allen's Ch- chest cute and joined by Niche or Nicholas Dispro. The Miller. As was, a common, as was common, the Miller in a small village, um, and he was there because he custom ground each farmer's grain, taking part of it was, its to- was a toll. He was thus distinguished from the merchant miller who bought the grain and said flour. It was a small village indeed that had no mill. As has been said, 
the mill was usually a prime reason for the settlement to begin. Nor are such mills extinct. One of them lacks less than 20 years of three centuries continuous toll-taking. In most cases, the choice of the mill site depended on the existence of a head of water, that is, a steam with enough fall and enough volume to turn a water wheel. In the flatlands, along the coast streams, this ran quite sluggishly, and through the rising tide was sometimes caught and held up by a dam to run a mill part-time. Wind power was likely to be more satisfactory than than any of the water uh, components or water-type mills. Windmills dotted the lowlands from Cape Cod at least as far south as Virginia. A few of them still stand. The forearms or veins of such a mill which the wind used to turn and rotate a shaft at the top of the structure were exactly like those still used in Holland today. Four long spars radiated from the outer end of the shaft. Each spar provided a spine for a light wooden grid which extended along both sides of its full length and was set to face the wind stream at a slight angle, as are the vanes of a pinwheel, in fact. So to offer resistance to the wind, each vane had a sail made of two long strips of linen, one on each side of the spar, lashed to the grid. The miller could reef in these high winds by twisting the outer ends and by so far reducing their area. To do this, he stopped the mill with one vane at its bottom position where he could reach the sail. A helper pulled the rope and cramped a hickory brake band on a seven-foot wheel fixed on the wind shaft inside the mill. No early American mill seems to have had a flyer to keep the sails automatically facing the wind. When the wind changed, the miller's apprentice, if he was strong enough, trundled the, the tail pole around in a new position. The ground end of the tail pole served as an axle of a wheel which gradually wore a circular trace around the mill. If it was a tower mill built on a solid base, the apprentice turned only a cap on the top of the tower. But if it was a post mill supported by one huge central stanchion, he rotated the whole building. Water mills were less flighty than windmills. Their power came always from the same direction and the miller could commonly control the amount of it. Commonly, but not always. Very primitive mills in the backcountry where streams ran steeply off and took power from a natural fall of water. The miller set a simple turbine called a tub mill below the natural (coughs) cataract, which turned it horizontally on a vertical shaft. The upper end of the same shaft ran the millstone. Sometimes the miller backed the blades of an Uh, undershot flutter wheel to the simplest possible paddle wheel into such a fall. Neither it nor the tub mill delivered very much power. It was easily stopped. The best and the most widely used form was the overshot wheel to which water came by the way of nearly a level ditch, called the head race from a dam some distance upstream. On small streams, the dam stored water overnight for running in daytime, while water over the dam's crest ran off rapidly downhill. The water in the race flowed sluggishly to a gate where the miller raised to release a controlled flow into the buckets of his wheel. He needed only 
enough water to keep the buckets filled, since it wasn't the speed of the flow, but the weight of the full buckets, overbalancing the empty ones that turned the wheel. An overshot wheel was often much as 20 feet in diameter, and where the head was great enough. It might be equally wide. A good many were enclosed to minimize freezing. Wheels of this kind make about two and a half revolutions a minute, and the big ones yielded more horsepower. They not only ran the grist mills, but every other kind of mill, and did it efficiently and effectively in the Industrial Revolution. So a heart of a grist mill was its grinding stones. A wooden counterwheel or contrite wheel wedged in the horizontal drive shaft ran the trundle head, a small wooden lantern gear. The trundle head shaft, usually carved the spindle, turned two to six times as fast as the water wheel shaft. This vertical spindle passed through the center, central holes or both grinding stones without affecting the fixed better at all. But it turned the runner or upper stone. It was true whether the spindle came down from above in a windmill or came up from below in a water mill. In either case, an iron rid fixed on a spindle crossed the funnel-shaped hole in the runner of, and it had its ends firmly anchored in the upper surface of the stone. Again, in either case, the lower bearing of the spindle rested on a beam which the miller could raise or lower to adjust his cut of his stones minutely, according to information gathered by his celebrated miller's thumb feeling. The texture of the metal, the device could also separate the, their stones entirely and keep them from grinding each other, as to prevent their setting fire in a place as they sometimes did. Grain dribblers from the hopper yard was also guided by a spout called a shoe into the hole of the runner. It was moved outwards by centrifugal force as the stones grounded, leaving their wedges the meal was con <clears throat> was confirmed by a wooden casing. The vat was covered with stones. It could escape only down the chute, or chute, which led to the wooden bin on the floor below. Silk bolting cloth was hard to come by, <clears throat> so in the primitive mills, the, the grind was sifted and re-sifted by hand in a termes. But by the late, excuse me, the late 18th century, most mills had boulders to which little leathern buckets fastened to a strap raised the mixed flour and bran to power taken off the main shaft. The boulder was a 16-foot-long, gently inclined reel, usually octagonal, covered with a series of bolting claws of increasing coarse, coarse mesh. Sometimes the lower one was the fine wire screen. The ground metal centered the high end. As the reel revolved slowly, the finest flour fell through the, <clears throat> through the near into the head and into its own chute. Common flour dropped at the midpoint, shorts, and can a canal. A mix of coarse flour and fine bran was left near the foot. Coarse bran fell out of the open lower end also. Ordinary granite quarried in full-sized chunks from a local hillside, did very, very well for 
grinding rye, flour, buckwheat, and cornmeal. But for grinding wheat, flour, nothing equal to French burr. It could be made sharper and would stay sharper than any other stone four times longer. Hence, these burrs were imported early and late. The French quarried them in a smallish lumps from beds of softer stone, shaped them to fit together, and bound them with heavy iron bands into the thick disc shape of all the millstones. The miller had to shut down occasionally to recut the dulled grooves in the working surfaces with, <coughs> of his millstones with a very hard ch- chisel-headed hammer called a mill-bill. Itinerant stone dressers also did the work, taking six to eight days to resharpen a pair of stones. The grooves had what might have been called for as a check mark profile were all nearly vertical, on the other side sloping. They were arranged variously, but always in such a way that the upper ones would appear across the lower, with the steeper edges opposed to archive a cutting action. The commonest arrangement was a group of straight grooves, each groove parallel to a tangent of the central hole. The better was just slightly concave. The runner was convex with almost imperceptibility flatter as to his better. This made the stones bear hardest at their outer edges and therefore grind the finest when they were on the outer edges. So, though the water mill needed no aiming, its miller and his helpers had little time to loaf. When the grain evolved in a cart or wagon or in a sack slung over the horse, they had to hook and or rope um, the whole thing so it would haul to the top of the flour mill. This was a hand-over-hand job in many small mills with only a single pulley to help, but it wasn't too hard to rig a, a windless uh, power source from the uh, from the water wheel. So they had to keep the hopper full and to watch the grind and change the gap between the stones as they were needed. Sometimes so more than the thickness of, of a piece of paper. Even when there was no hand sifting to do, the metal had to be measured, told, and bagged in the presence of the customer. A man wanted his own grain ground not just the equivalent amount of <clears throat> of some uh, other fellow's grain, but the miller had to tag each man's sacks and grind grind them separately. When that man's turn came, a strict first, <clears throat> first come, first served turn with each man's legal right, and he was pretty stuffy about it. On a Saturday, the miller often had to referee a scrap, when he wasn't permanently involved in such in such a one as a white collar. Unfortunately, Custom Miller's long bore a poor reputation for honesty. Well, could be stolen from corn or stolen from rye. Chaucer wrote at one of them. As a result, early laws named specific and served penalties to keep Millers in line. They're told, <coughs> they're told dishes and peck measurements were impacted and stamped, and they were enjoined to grind according to turn and well and well to grind the grain. So typical was in North Carolina in seventeen seventy seven a miller could take uh, as toll one eighth part of the wheat and one 
six part of the corn, with a fine or twelve shillings payable to the person present. If he took more, some tricky millers had a small extra chute from which uh, the vat is to be processed and concealed within the bin. Even the uh, the hardest miller might <coughs> put a square housing over his round stones to take out uh, what profit accumulation has built up in those stones, which wasn't probably much. The Tanner and the Courier. So when the wind was strong, uh, nearly every village in America was within smelling distance of the tankard. Leather still remains indispensable for shoes, belts, and saddles. But it formerly had many other uses for which no substitutes existed. No rubber, no plastic, no leatherette. Men wore high boots for riding and outdoor work. Nearly all who worked in the open, and many who didn't <clears throat> didn't wear leather, breeches, buckskin usually. Artisans wore leather aprons because that gave them good protection and they were quite tough. Harness was made of leather. Of course, so were carriage tops, whether rigid or folding, and carriage curtains for bad weather. Church bodies rode on slings called thoroughbraces, made of leathers of thick oxide. Even the springs became common. Carriage, <coughs> carriage bodies hung over from the straps. Thus, every hamlet and every, uh, every hamlet and, and work for a tanner who was his own courier and often made shoes, harnesses, saddles, and in addition, or could work the other way. The short the shoemaker had to do something, uh, or some of his own tanning, in order to get material. So many men tanned hides at home, but not necessarily well. And after a farmer had ruined old Bess's hide, he was glad to divide the next one with the tanner to have it. Uh, and to have some boots and uh, something that didn't crack. But, as with the grain, he wanted it his own back again. No matter how had to mark or how he had to mark every fell to assure this, in addition to the half or so the leather he got for his work, the tanner also got the hair, which he sold to plasters to hold uh, the lime mortar together and the official, which he said no peddlers who <clears throat> who resold it as uh, to the glue the glue makers. The tanner the tanner made a distinction between hides, which were cow and bull or ox, horse, or rarely buffalo or moose. The skins which were uh, were often called buffalo or moose or the um they were actually called sheep, pig, deer or again, rarely goat. Tanning cured all sides and some skins, but the tanner and more delicate skins were being tauled. Tauling will get attention presently. Uh, little was known about the country roads, though. The tanners first prepared for his hide. He split it down the middle into sides to make handling easier and the trimmed away worthless ends. Then he gave it a long soak in water, uh, to soften it, the hair was he loosened by further soaking with lime water, but small tanneries 
did this by simply stacking the wet hides for some days and letting them just sweat it off in the sun. Sweating was actually the beginning of rot, but it wasn't allowed to go far enough to hurt the leather. The hide was next thrown over a slanting beam and scattered with 200 knives on the flesh on the flesh side to remove fat and tissue, and on the grain side to take off not only the hair, but also the outer layers of skin, the epidermis, and through washing followed, what was washed was under the skin of the corkin, fibrous and pre, pre-meated with gelatin. The slow combining of the tannic acid with the gel, <coughs> gelatin uh, toughened the hide into leather, and then presented it, speeded up modern tanning using materials uh, does not yield a good leather, as does not the old method. So, <clears throat> so in addition, tree bark was the source of tannin. Of the many trees that yielded, black oak was the best, with hemlock a, a close second. Some man made an, an occasion of supplying tanneries, um, cutting the trees and stripping them, during the same time of corn painting. When the bark came off effectively and, and grinding it, grinding to it required a wheat-sized grain in the other moments. A tan bark mill was no more than a vertical post arranged to rotate the supporting a heavy pole with which, <clears throat> with which uh, to rotate an axle of the tree for a thick stone wheel. The wheel's corrugated edge crushed the bark of an ox or blindfolded horse. Hitched to the, to the pole's outer end, trundled the stone amount of a circular wooden trough, which has, kept, which has kept the bark in the path of the wheel. The mill ground two floorings a day ago. About a cord and a half, large tanneries had their own milk, or had their own bark mills, rather. So a, uh, a tannery used lots of water. So it was always on a stream, which the hides could be washed and soaked and washed and soaked. Water was needed for at least a half a dozen vats sunk into ground level and separated walkways. A tan vat was six feet long and four feet deep and had, was four to six feet wide. To tan the best sole leather, the kind that would end up pliable in the cleanest hide, was first soaked for a weak infusion of bark called ooze. The tanner gradually strengthened his ooze over several months. Gradually, he started the real, the real tanning. When the time that had arrived, he filled on a dry vat of one-inch layers of bark alternated with, with layers of hide, <coughs> with, with, with layers of hide, um, lay in it, and for long as a year. From time to time, he handled or turned the sides using a slender pole with a big hook on one end. It was a back-breaking job indeed. An expert knew by feel when the process was complete, and he could fish the heavy leather out and load it on a long cart for hauling, first to the stream for washing, then to the drying racks. Then there were no more than horizontal poles often in the open, but much better carved than the short. The dried leather was trumped with a heavy club to toughen it 
to compact it more, in 1768, Governor Moore of New York wrote that the American tanners have not yet arrived at the perfection of making sole leather. He must have meant that they had made they had all made colonial poor shoes, which were imported. So sole leather came from the bud of the of the bovine hide, while the thickness of the other was near the backbone. So the thinner belly parts of cowhide made the uppers for heavy shoes and boots. Calfskin provided uppers for dressier footwear, being thinner than cowhide, needing to be a more pliable when finished. The process of tanning, it was difficult. After soaking, scraping, and washing, calfskins are <clears throat> lay for a week or so or ten days in a solution of hen or pigeon oh, a week or for ten days in a solution of hen and pigeon, doing, <coughs> doing and that were turned frequently. They were then tanned off in, in ooze and increasing strength, and handled every day, set up for six months, but were never, <coughs> but were never layered in bark like cowhides. So buckskin was tanned this way also, but might be instead tall and white leather, white leather, that is, for gloves or for clothing. Sheep and, and goat lips, which are skins, were always tauled. Again, the soaking, scraping, and washing followed by long immersions into a solution of almond salt. These light calf skins, including calf, um, <clears throat> so these light calf skins, including calf, were finished by currying. The courier began the operation with all the skin wet. His object, too, was to make the leather soft and pliable and to give it a good surface finish. His first task was to remove any roughness or brick spots while the flesh side was, <coughs> was blooming, uh, with the edge of the smooth stone set in the smooth and steeply sloping stone lab. He repeated this operation with an iron uh, slicker, made like a scoring stone to burnish the surface. He next stuffed the leather with all the mix of tallow and neat's foot oil beaten up in a mallet and hung it out to dry for several days. Since drying stiffened it, it was bruised by beating and, or stomping, and they rubbed and worked with their hands to bring this back to life. Couriers in large center specialized particularly late after the Romans... So some dressed solely like black leather, which, which, they, <coughs> which they blackened and waxed for shoes and harnesses and other concentrated on glove leather, others on bookbinding leather, and still others on hard leather surfaces for drum heads and for steves. So let's move up to the, the fuller. The fuller cloth, whether home woven or professionally woven, needs filling to clean it and grease and compact its fibers and to raise the nap of its surface. A household could, could get enough a part of the uh, procedure by giving it a full party. The neighbors sat in a circle and stamped on the, this soap-saturated cloth with their feet. What they didn't do was a very good job. It did, it did the floor so good that the final surfacing didn't get done at all. The late of the earliest American fulfilling mill uh, 
shows the importance of professional work set up in the late 1643 by John Pearson at Raleigh. Massachusetts had kept on filling until 1809. The word fill indicted power of some kind, um, probably at ox power at the time. There was, <coughs> water wasn't harnessed to fulfill until late in the, uh, late in the 18th and early in the 19th century. Proper, proper filling began with a, a thorough washing of the cloth in hot water and soap to remove the dot, dirt and some grime and grease. Then it went on into the breathing or the beating through with Fuller's earth crotches made was thumped mechanically for hours. It was the thumpers that made the establishment a mill. So Oliver Evans in 1779, um, he set out and wrote the first Miller's Guide, but its principle was far older than that. Opposite similar mills had stamped ones and had beaten paper pulp for 300 years. Some fulfilling mills used several vertical panels falling into a single trough, but they were raised and dropped in by the same kind of tappet arms or cams that moved Evans' mallets, as he called them. His innovation was shaping the, uh, the beaters and the, uh, the trough to turn the cloth consistently as it was beaten. Fuller's earth... Um, is an absorbing clay, most often of a greenish color. It took nearly all of the natural grease from the wood and then it, in itself to be washed out with cloth. The fuller stretched the, the wet fabric on either tan frames to get rid of wrinkles and to maintain its width. With it had, had dried and he hung it over the rods and curried to surface thoroughly. He made his implement for mounting on a, on a handle itself a dozen or so used for the purposes since man first wove wool. The, <clears throat> this episode is covered with hook spines and when no substance yet has equaled it for uh, a math of the cloth. It doesn't raise evenly, however, that the fuller had to trim off the shagginess with extreme long-bearded shears. Mr. Fuller, shagginess and extreme long <clears throat> beaded shears, he moves the cloth over a cloth, horizontal and wooden. Fuller sometimes cleaned clothing as a side line, using Fuller's earth, ox gall, and, of all things, egg yolks to remove grease spots as early as 1760. An anonymous writer mentioned that the ability of owl, which is spirits, uh, of turpentine to distillate grease, but it didn't come into several good use <clears throat> as a solvent in about 1800. Even then, it was used only for spotting, and it left a garment smelling like a paint shop. Some European uh, fullers ran laundries, but no evidence that has been found that any did so in this country. They were probably all dryers using, using colors of vegetable wood, uh, which is Brazil wood for red and purple, and uh, quinceacerin, which is bark, which is black and oak, for yellow. And, of course, indigo for the most widely and used of all earlier, uh, earlier dyes. The mix of logwood and, and quercetin yielded black. Colonial dyers understood that the use of <coughs> mordants 
not only to fix their own objective, uh, but this these dyes may also vary in their colors. So the problem is back then there was no such standards that everyone could be adhered to. And, uh, you know, how do you run a society like that? So step in, Mr. Franklin, I believe. So any reader um, older than 50 years may remember the dressmakers that families had in windows or elderly matrons who stayed a week or two fitting, snipping, stitching, and talking. So none of the colonial itinerants seemed to have been women, but most of them operated the same way. From April to October, when traveling was least bad, they moved from farm to farm, often on a regular route, all to, to known patrons, staying as long as each place they would the work would last, and taking their pay in a surplus of materials of their craft or in any other portable product the farmers offered. Only rare did they compete with local workers, that they perhaps not skilled outsiders of trades, but centered in the large windows and towns. Because of this, it seems better to leave the methods for later and to cover here only the <clears throat> circumstances of their such work. So let's continue on with our country crafts here. The cat whipper, a marker of shoes with a cord wainer in the 17th and early 18th century. Just when and why he became a shoemaker while the repaired remains a cobbler is only for guessing. However, our ancestors often called a cobbler or a, a botcher um, with no reflection on his skill. The shoemaker who worked his way through the, co the country at both trades was generally known, especially in deterioration by the urban colleagues, known as the cat whisperer. Probably he moved from place to place to place on horseback as a, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Probably he moved from place to place on horseback as a rule, but the cat whipper who owned the folding bench must have had a, a chase or a jig. The thing is too bulky for a saddlebag, though he may have trundled it on the back barrow. Some did transport their equipment that way, while other artisans and farmer had come to terms which might take off half a day. People enjoyed such discussions, settled in the kitchen to retail news or retail shops and the granite countertops. So patch all those shoes that still had wear on them. Then using leather that had grown up on the place, he replaced the hopeless ones. And if he had no last one of the right size, he'd whittle one down from a hunk of white pine. He could build both shoes of a pair over the same uh, same day. They were identical, not left and right. He placed them in the, the last cross of his knees for working, and he kept it down where the, a scrap passed under the stick. He held down the, all this with his feet, though the cat's whisperer's shoes were of the heaviest kind. He sewed their soles on with linen thread, wooden pegs for holding soles, and invented by Harley by Harvey Bailey about seventeen twenty or eighteen twenty five rather let's talk about the weaver. The farmer sheared his sheep in the spring and washed the wool. His women carted it up to the 
uh, slivers by dragging it in between the paddles studded with fire hooks and then for the rest of the year of the year spun the slivers into yarn by twisting them together on the big wheel at which they stood to work uh, and which they turned with a wooden mallet and a finger held up to the up to the skies the farmer pulled up his flax by the roots in midsummer redded or rotted it in the winter fragmented by its hard sheath and core of the heavy wooden flax brake he's <clears throat> he scutched and, and and swindled and and used different slashing techniques at it with a wooden blade to get out of the larger chips the women then took over the fibers and dragged the larger trips chips through the uh, the the uh, coarse iron combs called hatchets to remove the rest of the splinters seated in a little wheel turned by a treadle they spun and cleaned linen into yarn during the rest of the year country families north of wilmington delaware nearly always owned a loom and because the spring they had pretty much spun yarn by hand if the wife in such a family was worth her salt she could receive and did but she had other things to do and the large family needed a lot of yard goods so the traveling weaver was welcomed while the women worked at the quilling station or the quilling wheel, winding warp on spools just for him. And weft on quills, he sat for weeks in the family's loom, webbing <coughs> plain fabrics or stripes or chest. The only patterns uh, most looms were equipped to weave, the linens made big shirts, uh, work smocks, shifts, towels, and big napkins. It took three strips to make uh, a sheet since the linen was only about 30 inches wide. So the wood made blankets again in strips and the outer clothing. Sometimes the weaver combined the last two fibers, um, a wooden, a wooden left or wooden weft on a linen, on a linen warp to make Lindsay Woolsey almost a warm, uh, pure wool and uh, I don't think we're going to be able to change that. Uh, but let's talk about the tailor. The farmer could sometimes patch a shoe, but he seldom made shoes. His wife may, may weave, or, and she could patch an elbow or make a linen shirt, but she was seldom able to tailor a coat very well. So the tailor followed the weaver and squatted cross-legged on the kitchen table uh, stitching breech, breech, uh, stitching breeches, uh, long coats, and short roundabout cloaks, which were capes for men, and riding hoods, which were full size, and hooded capes for women. The styles of these things changed slowly, and never was the tailor heard to say, they're not wearing that this year. So let's talk about the Chandler now. The Chandler, a colonial housewife, never threw away any fat. She rendered it, and she stored it in uh, pottery crocks. In very early days, the family burned it in grease lamps for light, but it was not merely, uh, but, it was, but it was smelly, smoky light, and the candles were even better. The mistress could make taller chips by repeatedly dipping wicks into hot tallow and cooling. So between dips, uh, what adhered, some families owned tin molds that 
could easily cast as many as a dozen candles. The traveling chandelier brought about his own big molds uh, that he had cast several, several times to maybe a few dozen times before. He strung them up with his loosely spun low linen candle wick, and the house provided melt, <clears throat> melted down uh, some of the harder fat and cast a year's supply of candles. So the softer fat the, the chandler turned into soap by boiling it outdoors was lye. As he boiled it, he arrived with a position or of a wooden paddle always in the, the same direction because of a suspension that is that the soap would have uh, fallen aside or something. So, so we're going to finish up tonight with the, the tinker. Sometimes between snow and snow, the tinker showed up with his pig over his shoulder, which was, uh, and his charcoal brazier on his back. His stay was short, only uh, a night or two. A day's work was usually enough to plug the family's leaky basins and put new handles on the old dippers and recast pewter spoons that had become broken. A tinker might mend a larger pewter article, like a plate or a bow, but he could seldom recast it, not only because the molds were way far too heavy to tote around, but because, because also because it had no equipment for cleaning up a cast iron after it was made at that facility. But below is a... Uh, when we talk about a, a, a tinker's pig with a principal tools that he carried with him, it was a soldier uh, piece of art with rivets rowed into the boxes and on its ends. Circling from the two hammers, a light one and a heavy one, there are tongs for holding metal over fire, tin snips and a hand vise and a, a double-ended soldering iron and a snarling iron, the use of which is explained in the latter selection on silversmithing. So the tinker made uh, his pig himself, though, and for that he could turn and, and hand at almost anything and try to get anything at even auction. Um, um, he was the first of all of the tinsmiths. So the tinker was the first to, be, to become a tinsmith. So a uh, fairly long episode. Greg Perry, the historic preservationist, uh, signing out. Thanks for listening.